0: This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. Are you ready for an amazing show? Today I have Joe Cummings as my guest. He wrote the very first Lonely Planet guidebook to Thailand back in the early 80s. And You'll get to hear what that experience was like. We discuss guidebooks in general, what they've done for travel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He shares his best advice for getting off the beaten path. We talk about technology and how it can affect the travel experience. He shares a little bit about his time hanging out with Mick Jagger. Yes, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. And stories, stories, and more stories. You know, Mick Jagger's a rock star, but Joe is a rock star as well. I mean, these guidebook authors, when I started traveling, we didn't have smartphones and guidebooks were very helpful for getting to know about a place and understanding, uh, getting some cultural context and historical context and some advice on the things to see and do. And guidebook authors, particularly Lonely Planet guides, were like rock stars to me. And uh, it was really cool to just hear what it was like to be a part of that guidebook revolution and really one of the people that kind of kicked it off because that guidebook to thailand was so successful you are going to love being a fly on the wall for this conversation and we've got plenty more in today's show i'll tell you about in just a minute but we should get into it right we got to get into the intro so i want to say thanks for being here and welcome to the zero to travel podcast my friend
1: listening to the zero to travel podcast where we explore exciting travel-based work lifestyle and business opportunities helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams and now your host world wanderer and travel junkie jason moore
0: hey there it's jason with zero to Travel.com. welcome to the show thanks for hanging out Letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. How are you doing today, my friend? What are you doing? What are you up to? How's life? I am getting ready to move. Oh, yes. The joys of moving, packing boxes. That's all going to start next week. Because uh, we're actually moving uh, about a week from the time of this uh, that I'm recording this intro piece for you, and you know, moving—I don't know, you know, trying to enjoy the process and uh, have a little fun with it. Get rid of some stuff. I love getting rid of things. I'm a minimalist, so uh, you know, I'm also a dad of two, so I don't know if my kids are so much minimalist because they love their toys. But if I, if I had my choice, I think living out of a backpack. Uh, And a suitcase when I was on the road too for so long Kind of just got me used to not owning a lot of things And now it's uh, pretty picky with the things I bring into my own personal life So I'm using this as an opportunity to unload some things I know I'm not nomadic anymore So I have to accept the fact that uh, I've got stuff And it's been accumulating You know if you live somewhere for a while It just, I don't know, all of a sudden you look around and there it is A bunch of stuff. (laughs) How did it get there? How did it even get there? Nobody knows. It just like appeared out of thin air. Anyway, this is the end of my time at my current apartment, and it's strange. It's always strange to close a chapter and open a new one, and always exciting. And I think travel, uh, in a way, uh, isn't that part of it, right? When you, even when you're going from place to place, I mean, you leave a place and. Especially if you're traveling alone, you're kind of meeting random people, doing stuff. You're like, all right, I just had this adventure. Now it's time to close this chapter, the Rome chapter. And now I'm heading to Vienna or um, I'm leaving Vietnam. I'm going to Cambodia. Now it's time to open that chapter. And I don't know, keeps life exciting, right? Opening and closing new chapters. So that's what's going on here. Speaking of moving, I got a message a little while back from one of you lovely souls in the Zero to Travel listening community who sent me an audio message, which was a treat because I love to hear your voices if I'm able to. And she talks a bit about a trend around moving related to the pandemic. I will share that audio clip with you uh, from one of uh, the fellow listeners out there. And along with that, answer the question that she asks, which is related to basically building your social circle during... A pandemic like we're going through you know how can you widen your social circle expand it and get around more people and I have three ideas I wanted to share just in case you were looking to do that so I'll share those on the back end of this show but first we have this incredible interview with Joe Cummings you heard it at the top of the show when I sent him a message I was just so glad that he agreed to sit down and do this and I loved hearing his story, his take on travel, uh, getting some of his advice, just somebody that's been doing it so long, living abroad and, and traveling and writing guidebooks and just a smart, fun, cool guy. And he was awesome to chat with. And you are going to love listening in on our conversation. Now, let's get into the interview segment. And I will see you on the other side, my friend. Joe. Yeah. Hey, how's it going?
2: All right. How are you doing?
0: Nice to see you and good to meet you. Same here. Yeah. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely. <laughs> whereabouts am I talking to you from?
2: I'm in Bangkok. My uh my little ghetto apartment in Bangkok.
0: Okay. Yeah. In the heart of the city, or like whereabouts in the city are yeah, you? Yeah.
2: It's um I'm next to Lumpini Park. It's just yeah very central. So next to the largest and oldest park in the city,
0: yeah. Do you generally prefer city life? Is that why you're based there, or is it more of a practicality? It's more of a
2: practicality. I, actually, I do like city life, but I, I like I don't. I like to move around. But uh, yeah, Bangkok is just really good for work. You know, making contacts and all of that. And I first moved down here, uh, 12 years ago from Bang I was in Chiang Mai. You know, and I felt like that suited me. Better at the time, so I was there twelve years. And then in 2008, I moved down here to take a job at the Bangkok Post. So I was a deputy editor there for four years, and uh, so that's why I came down. And then when that was finished, I could have moved back because I still have a place. But uh, I, I had gotten stuck on Bangkok by then. You know, I'm hooked on all the stimuli and the, you know, the, all the uh, dining options and seeing new people all the time, meeting new people.
0: So. Yeah, this was something that because uh, I live in Oslo, Norway. Not, okay. not known as one of the world's cheapest destinations, but no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was living in a mountain town in Colorado in Boulder before I came here. I think I was a little hesitant to admit to myself that I liked the city because I never really saw myself living in the city. And we don't live like downtown, downtown, but we're we're in the city. And, and then I kind of realized uh, it sort of grew into me sneakily. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, well, there's still some green and there's this, that, and the other. And here there's a lot of nature nearby, so... I was like, "Hey, man, I can get down with this city life thing," you know. Good,
2: yeah. <laughs> how, how, how did you end up in Oslo?
0: Oh, you know the old story: traveler goes to Brazil for a holiday, meets a meets a Norwegian girl. They don't talk for four years, blah blah. Then they meet they meet up in New York City. It's like a rom, it's like a bad rom com or something. And then man goes to to Norway and and marries her and has two kids. So <laughs> nice, good place
2: to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have, a, I have a trip planned to Sweden uh, coming up. I was gonna go, I was actually gonna go the first week of June, but now it's just looking too complicated. Not, not just getting in, I can get into Sweden okay, I can even transit to Copenhagen because I'm gonna fly to Copenhagen and take the train to Malmo. But getting back to Thailand is the problem. And I don't really, I don't wanna stay three months, I wanna stay like three weeks. So I think I'm gonna postpone it. I already canceled my ticket. I'm gonna, I I'm think I'll rebook for August maybe. I'm um, hopefully hopefully by August I'll be able to get back into Thailand after a few
0: weeks. Yeah, it's strange right now for sure. Well, I want to talk about that. I mean, I guess I've been I have started recording as soon as we call because I figure well I don't want to miss anything you say, Joe, because I, I don't even know how to introduce you. I'm talking to Joe Cummings. He's uh, an award-winning travel writer and author, but also I mean, so many things: musician, photographer, translator, trip planner. I, it seems like to me just learning about you through research and preparation. It seems to me that you've been traveling or living abroad pretty much your entire adult life. Is that fair to say?
2: It definitely is, and yeah, and a fair a fair amount of my childhood as, as well, because my my dad was in the military, so we lived we moved around a lot, including living in Europe, when I was like ten to fourteen. So yeah, I kind of got stuck on it early. And, okay. And I've lived outside of the United States but over two thirds of my life at this point. So.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, it seems like a pretty direct connection in terms of y- y- getting the travel experience as a youngster. How much did that play into your your life as an adult, like be, moving around, kind of being comfortable with that lifestyle?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to overestimate, I, I would say, um, you know, especially that move to Europe when I was 10. I, I remember, you know, I, what I can remember from leaving America was that I wasn't that happy about it you know losing all my friends that was in fifth grade at the time you know going to a strange place and I knew there would be different foods and you know not the usual stuff and uh it wasn't like I was you know pounding my fist on my little fist on the floor or anything but you know I was a little bit it's pretty, a little bit pretty moody, dramatic for by. a kid yeah yeah and then once we got there within a year it was kind of like the move to Bangkok you know, I just really got into it and I was like wow you know this is life, you know, uh, this is, this is so interesting. And, you know, I, I look at photos and the few photos I've that are still around that my sister has kept of, uh, of the family, like, you know, at Notre Dame or wherever, and you know, whatever in the early sixties. And, and the pictures, are, I I'm like standing apart from the rest of the family. I'm just like,
1: <laughs> like, I'm really
2: like, like I'm already starting to like gather information on some big project. Right. And it's just, it's just, I was a weird little kid that way. I think. Is it
0: just like a natural inclination uh, it's something is built into you. I mean, you're a travel writer, so you're 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 meant yeah. to pick up on all those details, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I must have started. I think it was started to happen then, and I didn't I remember also these long car trips to Europe, and uh, you know, my mother and father driving, and they were just the floorboards were littered with maps. My mother was a, a travel junkie, and uh, she was really into maps and the guidebooks of the day—the old-fashioned Fieldings and photos and farmers. So I was really kind of acquainted that with that world without actually thinking at the time that it would someday be a profession, I just thought it was kind of fun. One thing that happened that really changed, because I was always good at writing, like my teachers always said I was, like in grade school, junior high, high school, and then university, and they were always trying to steer me into being an English major, you know, uh, you know Mr. Cummings, your, your writing is good, you should go into writing, you should become an English major, study literature, you could be a great writer, and I was like, I'll have I, none of that. Writers are nerds, I'm gonna do something way cooler than writing. I didn't know what yet. Um, I know rock and roll star was one of my, I think I was definitely was rating rock and roll star way above being a writer. And then, uh, I dropped out of, um, college my third year, my junior year just to take a break. And, uh, I ended up driving a yellow cab in Washington, DC for about, for a few months, not, not that really. long. Interesting experience. And, uh, yeah, it was really a good experience. It was nice to just be, you know, take home cold hard cash every night be the master of my own destiny for the time, you know? And, uh, like one of the calls I got from the dispatcher was uh, to the National Geographic Office. And I thought, Oh yeah, National Geographic. Yeah, my parents subscribed to that magazine. I'll got I'll finally see the building. I'll see where you know where this emanates from. And I pulled up and this guy got into the cab coming out of the building. He looked like Brian Jones. He had like this these tight orange velvet pants and this like fur jacket and a Prince Viant haircut he slumped in the back and I and I was like Wow, well, I wonder what the hell he was doing at National Geographic. And, you know, after a few minutes of driving, I couldn't help it. I had to say, like, "What were you doing uh, at National Geographic?" He says, "I'm on staff, man." <laughs> <laughs> you see? Yeah, that's when yeah. that's when it clicked.
0: Yeah, okay. you're like, oh, right? they're rock stars too. Yeah, <laughs> if you're in the right place, and and you know, you you kind of became a rock star in that way in your own. In your own right, I would say. It's fair to say that. I
2: oh, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for, for, that, for that, you know, the, yeah. If you, I, all these things kind of you think about in retrospect. It wasn't really Right, not, right. wasn't planning. wasn't right. planning. In the
0: front seat of the cab at that moment, you weren't like, I'm going to become a travel writing rock no, star. No, you know? Just like, oh, okay, no. something's clicking here. So like yeah. going from, let's say, take that moment to making the transition to like getting into writing and, and, and actually being something that you pursued, what was that process for you?
2: I didn't want to be a writer, I knew that, or I thought I knew at the time, and uh, so what I was getting into was, uh, actually I was playing, I finished college, I did a political science degree at a Quaker college, I went to, I deliberately chose a Quaker college, because at the time uh, it was during the Vietnam War, and so I I established myself as a conscientious objector by becoming a Quaker, and I had a draft counselor there, and you know, I was one of 800 other males at that college that were doing the same thing, you know, the temporary Quakers. To, to, because our draft boards, most draft boards, the only moral argument against the war that we'd accept was the Quaker ones. So I, I, I rehearsed all of that. And then uh, and then I I really didn't do that much in the next three years after that. I was playing music a lot. I was in a band that was fairly successful in North Carolina, but it uh, wasn't like a great living, you know, as you can imagine, but uh, just playing small clubs. And, uh, and I read this book. I came across a book written by a monk in Thailand. Ajahn Buddhadasa. He became very, very famous later. He was a little bit less famous then. He's, he passed away in 1993. And it was translated into English. And it, it just really kind of hit me it, it, at a time when uh, I was a little bit, you know, without a rudder, shall we say, you know, I wasn't, music profession wasn't really turning on me on that much. It wasn't, didn't look like there was much future. Um, you know, it was just, you could, you just... I was looking for a direction anyway, so I, this monk in Thailand appealed to me, so I said, I'm going to Thailand. How can I get to Thailand? So I, uh, I joined the Peace Corps, and that's how I got to Thailand. So um, I came here to do that, and then I really got turned on to Southeast Asia, Thai language, Thai culture, the whole deal here, the Mekong culture and all of that. So when I finished with the Peace Corps, I went straight to uh, graduate school at Berkeley and did a Southeast Asian studies program. And it was while I was there, um, Oh, I missed the part there. When I was coming back from Thailand to the States, I took a trip through India and Nepal, and I picked up, I went to a bookstore, and I'd already seen Southeast Asia Shoestring, the Lonely Planet Guide, and I really liked it. I I could obviously see this was a new paradigm of guides. This is way cooler than my parents' guidebooks, the three Fs, you know, folders for armors and fieldings. And it was very underground at the time. It felt very underground. And um, so I kind of, I looked to see if they had any guidebooks to India and Nepal, because I was going there. I looked in the Bangkok bookshops, and and even wrote to the company, I think, just as a reader. And uh, they didn't have any guidebooks yet to India and Nepal. They didn't have one to Thailand yet, but they had Burma and Sri Lanka. And I picked up, I bought both of those books in Bangkok, Burma and Sri Lanka. I didn't go to either country until many years later as an updater for Lonely Planet. Went to India and Nepal, read those books while I was traveling. And then while I was finishing my master's degree, I thought... Uh, what, what's next? <laughs> Master's degree in Southeast Asian studies doesn't get you much. So I wrote a letter to Tony Wheeler, um, offering to do a Thailand guide for them, and you know, suggesting they should do one because even then, the, even in what that it was 1980 that I wrote to him, there were double the amount of tourists in Thailand and probably Burma and Sri Lanka combined. And he said, and he said, go. He was like he was into it. I, I did some sample writing for him, and he sent me uh, nine thousand dollars, and I was on my way.
0: Yeah, this is uh. Yeah, because I came across an article you wrote on CNN a little bit uh, back, yeah. Yeah. and it was yeah. uh, it was about your experience creating the first Lonely Planet guidebook to Thailand in the early '80s. And um, as soon as I read it, I was like, "Oh, I'm like going to email this guy right now <laughs> because I need to hear some of these stories." And you know, to me, like you mentioned the rock star thing, and like when I started traveling, I was using guidebooks, and Lonely Planet was. I mean, it's like. I would say arguably one of the sexiest brands ever created, right? Like you go into a bookstore and you look at that travel shelf and you see those lonely planet books. I mean, I, you know, this is not like my normal thing now, but like back then, especially when I was starting out, it's like, they're just the covers and the images and like just how it looks. You're just like, I want to be in all of these places right now, please. And, um, and I saw the guidebooks, Writers for lonely planet and some of these other budget guides as like, they were like rock stars to me. I'm like, wow, you're getting paid to like cruise around and, and write about these places. like, seems like the greatest thing ever. I, I mean, was it at the time? I mean, he did this. I mean, and this it is was, a, it was
2: great. This Especially is a different era. Of
0: course. But yeah talk about what that experience was like uh, just going through Thailand in the early 80s and writing this this guidebook it was such a new thing.
2: There were there were a couple of things that made it really cool in the beginning. One was that it was a fledgling company with a lot of freedom, you know, and the content was completely decided by the author. So the whole thing was author driven. That was not, that was really important. So it mean you could just you know you weren't you just felt great. You felt empowered, shall we say. Uh, the second thing was that nobody had been writing about this region, and it was, you know, it was the, my guidebook for Lundi Lonely Planet was the first guidebook in English to, to the country since 1928. And so I didn't have much reference material to go by. So it was a real pleasure and a real adventure just to be bombing around the country, not knowing exactly what you're looking for. I, you know, I found threads of things. I found some stuff on archaeology and architecture that kind of formed my path a little bit. I said, okay, these are some famous temples I need to see. And uh, But not much, there wasn't much, and there wasn't even much guidance on beaches, and now beaches are one of the big things, right? So I would just, uh, I would rock up in a small town and just start asking around in markets and especially night markets where people were more, had more leisure time and more alcohol to sort of loosen up the, uh, the tongue and the mind and then, you know, people were very generous, they'd put me on their motorcycle and take me out to see sites, so they'd invite me to their homes, they'd explain to me about the cuisine. And uh, I'd, stu- I'd studied Thai intensively when I was at Berkeley. So by the time I started the Lonely Planet guide, I was already fluent in Thai. So I was able to get—I was able to get all of my information. Virtually, you know, 99% of my information was coming directly from local people. So that, as long as that lasted, you know, and and then the freedom to decide what goes in the guide—it was, uh, yeah, it was a dream job for sure. And the money turned out to be good. I ended up t- getting royalties by the second edition. Because Tony actually said to me, how did you feel about the payment you got for the first edition, which was $9,000. And I was thinking, Not bad. That was pretty good, you know. I was okay with it. I bet that Uh, went a a
0: bit of a ways in uh, Thailand at the time. 1981
2: was the the (laughs) research trip. So, yeah. Um, And I had my airfare paid back and forth already because I was doing – I doubled it up with some field field, uh, research that I was doing for my final thesis at at Berkeley. So, I did – I rolled the two trips into one. I mean, it was just luck. It wasn't like I'm a mastermind at this thing, but I just, so I got I got a double dip, so to speak. So the nine grand pretty much just stayed in my pocket. But so I was pretty happy, but when he said, are you happy with that money? This is a story I've never told anyone, by the way, but what, what the hell. Go for uh, it. Because it's it's there's a dark side to it, but I'll get to that. Um, he said, well, before I could even answer, because I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna give me more than 9,000 this time? What's he talking about here? And he said, because what I'd like you to do, what we'd like to do is um, put you on royalties, give you a percentage of every book sold. And that eases our cash flow. And you'll, and you'll make more money. I guarantee you'll make more than 9,000. And I was a slightly skeptical, but I trusted him. I said, yeah, all right, let's do it. Well, as it turned out, I made way more than 9,000 doing the royalties. And so, so the, you know, that combination of things, I, I, I was on a, uh, you know, I was like on a 16-year high, let's say. Uh, yeah, and... Until the royalties were taken away from me in, in 2002, that's the dark side. And uh, anyway, I don't want to go any further than that because you know I want everyone to feel good about this experience.
0: Right. No, I understand. That's uh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you, one of the one of the people that helped kind of establish that company so early on. It's... That's it.
2: That's it. That's what. Uh, that's uh, been. Anyway. Yeah. Business is, business is business, and they had to do that to sell the company to uh, BBC Worldwide. Right, so they, was, and then, and then two, I think uh, it
0: changed hands into like a tobacco company or something. I don't. know. Two I years think.
2: after that, right? They sold it. Tony sold it to uh, BBC Worldwide for two hundred and sixty million dollars. Two years later, BBC Worldwide, because they botched, they couldn't, they didn't know what to do with the brand. Maybe the brand had already peaked. Also, I would say because that was two thousand six, two thousand seven, and to me, the brand peaked by two thousand five. Um, they sold it for half what they paid for it two years later, so they took a big loss, and then. And now I would say that the current owners, you know, I've never met them. I don't know anything about them. I would love to meet them and chat with them and you know, ask them to somehow restore the vision, because then you might be able to rebuild this brand. But they, you know, even before COVID came along, they were in trouble, and now COVID has pretty much has the company on its knees. But it's still, you know, still hanging in there, and I hope, I hope they survive. Yeah.
0: Hey, maybe we can chuck some cash in, get some of the listeners involved. You know, we can get it back yeah. on track. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Put me in charge.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You got it. Um, How much does speaking the local language open up travel, the travel experience for somebody? This episode is brought to you by U S bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have taco Friday in Norway streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa signature card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. And enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
2: It's hard to, it's just amazing. I mean, I know the difference between when I was there in the Peace Corps and of course I learned some then. You had a training and I, you know, after a year or so, I was really good in conversational time. I couldn't really read. I could read a little bit, but but it it just made the experience so much better. Um, It just felt like, you blend it in for one thing. And then when you needed something, you needed information, you just needed something, you know, transactional in your life, you know, medical treatment or food or whatever, that made it a lot easier. But then when I came back after having been at Berkeley for two years and I was, then I could read and write and then my vocabulary was you know, 10 times larger. And the experience was really strange to like land at Don William Airport and just get in a taxi ride from the airport into town. I'd been gone for two years you know normally you go away from a country for two years and you're you're rusty in their language this is like infinitely the opposite it was like my eyes had just opened up i could read every billboard on the way and it was just like it was like a, a mind-altering experience almost um but you know most people aren't going to go that far but I, I i i try to make a point myself now and if i'm going to spend more than a week in a place i try to learn some of the language you get carry a phrasebook or a translator and Make an effort. I think it's appreciated, you know, by the, the host country. They appreciate it. And uh, it's just fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. For me, it's
2: just fun to do
0: that. I mean, my, my Norwegian is, is not so great, but it's good. I mean, I can speak it, you know, and understand most of it. You know, people just appreciate that you're in their country and you're speaking their language. And I know it's not possible for everybody. I mean, if you're traveling through a place for three weeks, I mean, certainly everybody can learn a few phrases and kind of at least give it a go, you know.
2: That's what they, uh, I think they should. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Writing a guidebook is such a monumental task. And maybe this is getting into more of your creative process. And I'm sure that's evolved in different ways over time. But especially thinking about like the first guidebook and you're 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 out in the world. And this is always a question I like to, to ask travel writers because you're trying to balance this. You got two things going on in your head, right? You're like, all right, well, what's the story here? What, what kind of information do I need to capture? How am I going to present this versus, okay, let me feel this. Let me experience this let me like be a part of this so I can get the emotional side and understand what that means. But also your brain can't help, but think like of different sort of ideas and ways you may cover it. So I, I, I think you're hopefully you understand what I'm saying. I um, do. Is, is that something that you struggle with? How do you balance that creatively? How does that work for you?
2: Yeah, I do struggle with it, and it's and more so now in the kind of writing I've been doing since 2006, which is when I more or less stopped doing guidebooks. I've done a little bit of guidebook work since then, but with guidebooks, you're not so most, not so much. paying to the paying attention to the emotional side. I mean, you are some because you need to have some inspiring words for the readers, even in a guidebook. So you do have that that veins going on, but mainly you're just get, getting information. You're just a a data uh, scoop, so to speak. Um, and the other thing is you're trying to divide. Uh, Essential from non-essential experiences. That's a big part because you can't write about everything and uh, It's like what makes a good guidebook writer? And this is the same for feature writing is deciding what is most essential for readers to know or to feel to experience, not necessarily, you know, there's a practical side, the service-oriented side, and then there's sort of a, a the story-oriented side, but after I started to get into feature writing and and longer books, coffee table books, because I've done quite a few of those then it became much more of a challenge to balance those because I was constantly having to remind myself that, you know, I've, there's got to be a point to this story. It's got to have some kind of it's got to have a, a storyline to say. So, I, you know, always looking for that storyline, always looking for inspiration. And somebody doesn't come until after you come home, but at least you're it's usually based on something that you picked up and you're going through your notes and you something you didn't think was that consequential. Just suddenly it pops out the notes. You go, oh, there it is. That's my lead. Or that's how I'm going to finish. Or that's, oh, I'm going to make the story about this, not about what I thought I was going to make it. And the other thing is staying open, too, not being too rigid. And I try to pick my assignments and make my pitches for assignments so that it's not too lockstep. You know, what the story is going to be a little bit open ended. Like I'm working on a story for CNN now about Anthony Bourdain. And and, uh, and I deliberately left it vague. I said I just want to do a story on board a would you like me to do that um, you know because I worked with him and I have, you know he was a hero of mine hero of all of us and it's just uh, I thought it may be interesting to them and, uh, but but I don't really have an idea exactly what I'm going to say I'm just starting it now I mean, I'm, I'm finishing I'm doing more and more research so um, it's important for me to have a, a little bit of leeway there and'd be that's why I don't do news you know I, would have, I wouldn't be a good news reporter. Mm. Yeah. Uh, just
0: that you want, you want to have yeah. the, the openness in terms yeah. of, uh, where it can go. Yeah. And I want to feel
2: something and it. you know, and, and for news, you, you know, you don't need to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the key, right? Feel something and communicate it. And that's, that's a great way to put it in terms of like maybe the order to do it. And I, I, I ask a lot of these questions selfishly because these are things that I struggle with as well. So I always like to hear how, how other people handle these things.
2: I mean a lot of it comes to the research. I always think, you know, when you kinda like if you really need some inspiration and you're not getting it, I just I do more research. That's my default. More research, more research, because then sometimes something jumps out. Or read other writers, try to find I try to find literature. I must even I'm thinking even with guidebooks. When I was doing the uh, a Baja California guidebook for another publisher, Moon. Turned out to be a really big seller seller and I had a lot of fun doing it. I even moved there for a while. Um but I was looking for that emotional center to make the writing more inspiring for the guidebook. Because it was a moon like Lone Planet gave the author a lot of freedom to sort of do that. And it just wasn't coming, you know, I was working on it for about a year. And, uh, and I finally went, read John Steinbeck's uh, nonfiction book called Sea of Cortez, It's his log about taking a ship called the Sea of Cortez through, uh, down the California coast and up into the sea of, into the Gulf of California or the Sea of Cortez. and. Um, it just, it, then it did it. I got the inspiration. I got everything I needed. I needed, I got the juice that I needed.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how another piece of art like that can kind of add this injection into your work uh, and just inspire it in a different way. Since you're past sort of the guidebook stage of, of your career, I guess it sounds like, or well past it enough to kind of reflect on that, I'm wondering if you could share some thoughts around the impact of guidebooks and i'll use a specific example and i don't know if this is fair to say you can correct me if i'm wrong but what i got from the cnn article what i gathered one thing is like i'm like did joe kind of create the beast that is kosan road like you know and if nobody's familiar with that that's like sort of the backpacker haven if you go to bangkok and like that's the street where like there's all kinds of places to stay and places you can book travel and i mean joe can describe it better than i can but that's like a specific example right
2: I think, especially in the early years, I think, you know, you had guidebooks and just travel writing in general had a lot more impact back then, let say in the 80s and the 90s. I remember there was a cover story on Thailand for, for uh, Time Magazine that Pico Ayer did. It was called State of Grace was the title. It was a great, great title. And uh, what, uh, talking to travel suppliers here in Thailand, by the time I knew lots and lots of people, had tour companies, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. They said that article had more impact than any piece of writing before that or since then, up till now, I don't know. Um, So, you know, I think certain pieces of writing can can make it that have that impact. And then a lot of times people think it has influence where it doesn't. They'll go to a restaurant that's like full of people carrying Lonely Planet Guide, for example. And they go, wow, this restaurant has been ruined by Lonely Planet. And uh, and then I'll hear about it or someone will just say that to me. And it's like it's the restaurant that I didn't recommend even. And so it's just a coincidence that, you know, there's a correlation they're making between people carrying the guide and eating at a place. And, and the, I, as far as I can tell, people never took my recommendations about where to eat. I think, uh, but I think they took my recommendation on a neighborhood to stay in that, that turned out to be khao Either that or it was a total coincidence. And that's also possible. It's just the timing was like that. Was- well,
0: what do you think about guidebooks like what they've done for travel i, w- I would say i would categorize this to the good the bad and the ugly
2: yeah <laughs> yeah but people were when people when it got to a point where people just you know they're just walking down the street with their nose in the book and they're not even looking around it's like it was almost like looking at a mobile phone nowadays you know people do that now with smartphones but the, the guidebook was like that for a while they would be buried in the book walking down the street oh this is the place and then get in the restaurant and then while they're eating they're look buried in it to talk you know look where they're going to go there. so that was too much you know, for me, and that was like, and that, that's not the fault of the guidebooks, really. That's the, that's, that's mass travel. That's like the lowest common denominator. I mean, once travel just, I, we used to think of places like Southeast Asia and Africa and the subcontinent and South America, the third world, shall we say, as being, you know, very adventurous places to go. And mass tourism, it was off limits to mass tourism for many reasons, mainly lack of infrastructure. So it was only sort of the bold, the avant-garde, among travelers who would go there and they and they weren't they were more sensible what's the word more uh, resourceful than to rely on a guidebook even if there were guidebooks they were they were just sort of a side thing for them but then once mass tourism was funneled into these more adventurous zones then uh the people weren't so adventurous and then they they were addicted to guidebooks so you know what i'm saying It's like it was like a change in the culture of travel in these parts of the world. And nobody was saying that about Paris, for example. Paris was full of people using guidebooks, too. And uh, and in terms of tourism, I remember people, someone saying to me, oh, Bangkok's overrun by tourists now. This was back, this was probably back when Bangkok was getting maybe four million tourists a year. And at the time, Paris was getting 40 million tourists a year. And I pointed that out, and it's like, you know, it's just because, you know, you're trying to, you, you expect, these people were were expecting these so-called third world zones to be free of tourism. But but they no longer are. Now they're they're subject to mass tourism. Only, almost no corner is untouched now. And I don't think that's the fault of guidebooks. This is what I'm trying to say. I think it was the the change in the market that just dragged guidebooks along with it. It did change something, the success of guidebooks and here we go into the, well, it's not what call called, the dark side, but it's, for me, it was a big decline in the motivation to do guidebooks was when they became so successful they were selling so many millions I mean Lonely Planet and other guidebooks as well just the publishers were just minting money basically I mean by the time Thailand sold 2 million copies it would become a very valuable commodity to Lonely Planet and the same with all the other top 10 or top 20 rolling printed guides and so they started getting very uh, conservative about what they put in there they didn't want to Take, do anything that might send the market south. And, uh, and that included like putting in, I remember getting one of my manuscripts back, updated manuscript, maybe it was on like the 10th edition or 12th edition, you know, I've been doing it. I did it for 25 years, so it was somewhere along the line, I remember getting feedback from an editor, from a, a young editor at Lonely Planet in Australia, who had never been to Thailand, I don't think I'd ever had been outside of Australia. And she said, uh, well, I see you have this town, Chiang Khan, in Northern Thailand, in the guidebook, uh, well, we noticed that Photos doesn't have it, Fromers doesn't have it, Rough Guide doesn't have it, do we really need it? And I wrote back and said, you know, Lonely Planet made its name writing about places that no one had ever written about, maybe never been even, and now you're comparing yourself to those others and you want to be like that, I didn't say quite that harshly. And I, and I bent to their will. I, we, we, they took the city out. I couldn't. I couldn't resist it by, that time. by that time. by that time, it was it was top down driven, and they were using focus groups and things like that, you know, for marketing. So the whole guidebook thing got really corporate. Travel got corporate uh, travel in these parts of the world. So yeah, guidebooks got sort of the glamour sort of faded by around yeah 2004, 2005 for me. Not for me. The peak was. Mid '80s to mid '90s, yeah, you know the almighty,
0: right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's just interesting to hear your take, being right in the thick of it, you know, for for those years and seeing, you know, the whole progression.
2: In my opinion, if they want to survive and and gain, I mean, it's not like there's still a front runner in the market. Or where they need to go back to that uh, have the kind of vision that Tony Wheeler had before he sold it, which was, you know, leaving no stone unturned and and let let the author lead the way
0: again in sort of the age of mass tourism. We can say, well, obviously what, nobody's traveling right now uh, because of everything that's going on with the pandemic. But um, what advice do you give to somebody to get off the beaten path and stay off it? Is there, is there even an off the beaten path anymore?
2: <laughs> well, there is, there is. I mean, I mean, even in the most touristic country in the world, there's, a, there's off the beaten path. There's smaller towns. Once you find towns that don't have some major historic site, or some major natural site. And, uh, you know, that's where to look. To start, you start with that. The other thing is to look for local, now in the age of internet, which is fantastic for gathering information when you're traveling. um, Look for local bloggers, because local people, the local insight will always have stuff that's a little more hidden from the major guidebooks or the trip advisor, for example, and other crowdsource information that's all just sort of tourism industry related or um, targeted. And uh, so that's I, I look for like local insight on on things to do and places to eat and fa- even fashion. You know what part of the city is known for. You know the hippest fashion and I mean, you, and you just go wander around. I was in Tbilisi last year in Georgia, and I got into the underground theater scene there. Just I mean, just as a spectator, and I and I did it just right so because I knew it would get me away from the mainstream tourists down in the main square and went to the the man, the by the river and all of that. And, uh, so there's, there's just lots of ways to get off there Just heading to smaller towns, looking for a niche, uh, your own niche interests, maybe that, uh, anything that's not, that you wouldn't see on, uh, you know, National Geographic Traveler television.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know you've got some stories. I'd love to hear one, uh, maybe an example of, uh, of getting so far off the beaten path that maybe you were like, I I think I'm too far off the beaten path. This is a little uncomfortable.
2: (laughs) That happened so many times, so many times, you know, so many times I'd be out there somewhere. I mean, yeah. When I would just think, uh, I don't know. I'm lost now, but you know, might as well not go back. Um, (laughs) you know what I mean? Just having such a, insular good time. I, I, I think that basically one time I spent four consecutive months in Myanmar. I would come back, you could, back then you could do this. I'd go in for a month, I was working on a, updating a, 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 an edition for Lonely Planet, and you, I'd go in for you get 28 days, and I'd fly back in the morning, get my visa application in the morning, pick it up in the afternoon, and fly back that evening. And you could get away with that, and I did that for four consecutive months. And I got lost out there. I was, I remember being out in Sightway and just I was losing track of time. It was like a you know, Colonel Kurtz thing almost in a minor, in a minor way. So that, know, that's not really a story per se. I The other major event that happened uh, for me was um, in the late 80s I was on the coast of West Java doing Indonesia for Lonely Planet. And uh, and I was at Charita Beach and in, in the distance, 50 miles off the coast. Were the the small islands that are the rema- uh, remainders of the rim of the crater of the Krakatawa or Krakatoa volcano, the greatest volcanic eruption in recorded history, eruption in recorded history, back in the 1800s sometime. And I thought, well, this needs to go in the guidebook. And I started asking around. No, there's no boats out there. Um, I found a fishing boat and a few other travelers that were willing to chip in and get these guys in a fishing boat to take us out there. So we got in there. there. was eleven of us and a crew of three, probably a 22 foot boat, one half cabin, very short on the top. And um, we got out to the the islands, and they were beautiful. It was, they were steaming and you know, lava pumping out, and we felt really adventurous and everything. It took they, they they said it was going to take four hours out and four hours back, and it already took us seven hours to get there. So we thought, well, we're going to be driving, we're going to be uh, sailing in the night, but that's okay. And about an hour off the islands coming back the engine conked out they couldn't get it started And as they were trying to repair it a huge tropical cyclone came up and that our little boat was tossed and turned for the next 26 hours we were on the we were on the verge of capsizing every five minutes it, it felt like i mean these huge swells and the boat would be up at the top we all be thrown across the air, was holding on to different parts of the cabin. Waves were rushing through the boat. But every one of us, including all of the crew, totally 100% sure we were going to die. Uh, but uh, yeah, the next, you know, the, the, the storm subsided and uh, the guys got the engine going again. But they took it apart with a hammer and chisel. They used shoe leather to make a new gasket because they'd blown a the gasket, which is an amazing ingenuity. We made it back like Another seven hours after that, and we had no, no food or, or water the whole time, or very little. There was a couple snacks. So that was a big thing. I wrote about it for a, a, a travel literature collection that came out, I think, in the early 90s. But that, was, uh, that was the time when I was thinking. The thing was, I was so driven by my assignment. I remember my imagination of, if this damn boat goes over, we end up in the... I just, my, my image was me holding my notes over the head. Like, this. like I can't lose, I can't lose my notes. Right. You know, Cause that's I, I the, like,
0: that's the big concern.
2: Yeah. I, was like, <laughs> I look back again. I'm like, what was I thinking? That was like ridiculous.
0: Wow. That is just putting myself there. 26 hours. That is, that's a marathon, man. No food or water. Like yeah. the nerves, no, the, the nerves, the amount oh, of yeah. uh, stress on your body emotionally, not to mention
2: physically, and watching every, all the people reacted differently, it was like I, I thought about writing like a story about it. That's not as you know, like a fiction thing because it was almost like what's that bridge over San Luis Rey? It's like one of those situations where everyone's true character comes out. You know, this one couple that seemed like the ideal couple, both really good looking, they just separated from each other and ignored them each other for the rest, the entire rest of that emergency. You think they would be cuddling and holding on to each other? They wouldn't even speak to each other. And uh, the most macho Australian guy with the muscles. He totally freaked out and was crying. We were all holding on to him and trying to calm him down. You know, everyone was different, you know? Yeah. I mean, you can laugh
0: now because you all survived, but that's yeah. uh, it's a wild tale, man. That's, um, yeah. Yeah, that's something you're not going to experience sitting at home. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's right. And I always say I have this motto on my, my slogan on my Instagram, too, or is it my Twitter? One or the other. You know, misadventure beats missed adventure. You know, yeah that's great I, for me it's, it's always worth taking the risk and uh, you know I I'm, I'm sure I've taken risks that were foolish and, and just been lucky that was one of them that was one of them when i got back when we got back from that trip then i was talking to the german guest house owner at the place i was staying and he said you did what you took one of these local fishing boats they're not built they don't have the power and the and the maintenance to be able to get out past the bay into open sea you, know, you risked everyone's life by doing that. Well, it wasn't my Id- only my idea, by the way. It was like we came up, me and these other backpackers came up with it together. But, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, Stupid. you don't know what you don't know, right? That's right. That's
2: <laughs> you hadn't I'll do your... more research next yeah. time. I'll we'll never, never charter a boat without doing a lot more research.
0: You hadn't built your career on uh, sailing at that point, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, you could always look back in time, right, and say like, oh, that was the golden age of travel. Or that's when it was like so much better. But you truly can say there is a huge difference between pre-smartphone travel and post-smartphone travel. What are your thoughts on, on travel in the modern age in that way, having, having been out in the world in the way that you had for so many years? And now, like you said, a lot of people are tethered to the smartphones and Instagram, and social media, and all this stuff. Um, how has that changed the travel experience uh, uh, for you? For, I mean, just want to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, technology has made a huge difference, and uh, I'd say mostly for the better. You know, people are more informed by the time they get to a place if they want to be. I mean, some people just are determined to stay ignorant. But let's, let's say the people who are, you know, what I call the people looking for a true cultural experience or real or, or true, just a hundred percent experience. They're not trying to transport their comfort from uh, you know Manhattan directly to <laughs> right. uh, to uh, Zambia or whatever. Um, Culturally insulated travel is what I call that. But uh, so the technology is able to prepare more, actually, be more knowledgeable, maybe more culturally sensitive, and maybe even more environmentally sensitive because you'll know that you know this beach is uh, known for uh, pollution, and maybe you could do something about it. I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, you know, it can. That's 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 the good side. And the other other another good point. I know for the, for myself, for example, when I was in India. Last year, um, I wanted to get away. I was in Jaipur for a conference, and then I wanted to see something. I wanted to get off the beaten track, you know, in, in Jaipur, and I really, I mean, in Rajasthan. And I just used my GPS to like find a place, and you know, I'd find places that were within a certain radius, and then then I'd look at little stuff on the internet, and I found a town that looked pretty good, and then and then when I got to that town, I loved it, and then I looked for more small, but and I, I ran out of small towns to explore in the immediate vicinity, but the GPS still worked. You could still you could still find your way to the next village, and and you could not only that you could be in the village, and if you got you know you kind of had some sense of where the streets were going, and maybe get a little bit lost. So it, because of that, I was able to actually go a little deeper, a little more off the beaten track, because of the technology. It gives you a little bit of a, I guess you could call it a safety net, and the information. Um, now the downside is it means that the whole experience seems slightly less of a. You don't really get that sense of the unknown as much going into the unknown. Um, you know, when I was gone, when I was going into Burma for for four months, I was out of touch with the outside world. You know, there was obviously, there was no internet then to begin with, and I, I wasn't able to get any phones or mail, figured about that, telegraphs, all, all of that, gone. So the sense of really experiencing and leaving everything else behind was much greater, and that made the experience a little more pure, in a way, not pure, what's the word? Intense, maybe, would be the word. You kind of, you really kind of... You couldn't just like oh I think I think I think I'll check my Instagram my social media and then everything else dissolves and nothing dissolves you were always there in it until you fell fell asleep and into your dreams shall we say so that's I think that's the downside
0: yeah you used the word pure then retracted it and that that's the word I would use right like and maybe that's just me being again rose tinted glasses and thinking about and, and you know it's probably because. Sometimes my own habits with it are so bad that's like I, I just miss my former self, right? <laughs> it's just like it''s because it's, it's your own responsibility. I mean you can it's a tool that you can choose to use however you want and sometimes we all don't use it in a smart way even though it's supposed to be smart. <laughs> yeah <it> requires. <laughs> but, a,
2: it, you know, I think it's it's worth you know reviewing one's usage of that kind of stuff tech and technology and social media. And then you know, say okay, you know what? I probably should. I don't need to Instagram the photo I just took right now. I can sit down and do that tomorrow or tonight or even next week. Like, you know, but it's funny how I'll be walking around with friends somewhere, certain friends, and uh, you know, we're having a nice walk. You know, we take a photo, and, and all we have to wait for one friend because he's back there. He's he's just he's compelled to put it post it that moment. So we're waiting. He's got to edit the photo. He'll you know, crop it. Come up with a witty caption, get the hashtags, and we're like, "Come on, yeah, <laughs> you know who so, yeah. you are, friend." <laughs> Pe- people need to look at that kind of behavior. I think a little more, be a little more introspective. You know. Yeah, just yeah. for, for all their own good too. Because I'm thinking to myself, is he enjoying this? I don't know. It's like he's documenting it and showing it off, and it's not really, he's not really here. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, we spend a lot of screen time in front of the screens now for work. For uh, you know, now they're with us all the time. So man, it just always feels so good to me when, like I took a long walk into the city the other day and it was just like, there was just none of that. It was just like, hey, let me just walk for a couple hours and just look at things. And it it just feels good to kind of be in the world that way. And it's like, oh, we have to make the, it feels like you have to make the effort to do that. Whereas that really should be our natural sort of inclination or our, our it should be like our default setting, not our like, Our other setting as humans, you know? I agree. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device. you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Well, having spent so much time in Asia and all your experience and background, I'm, I'm guessing some of the strong interest came from Eastern philosophy. Is that something that uh, you practice, that you
2: well, Well, it, it, it definitely drew me here in the first place. As I mentioned that book by Ajahn Buddhadasa, the monk, Famous monk. That, but I mean, that kind of crystallized it at that point. But even before that, I mean, while I was doing my degree at the Quaker College, part of the I don't want to say indoctrination, anyway. Part of the Quaker education involved. They're really into Quaker, modern Quakers. They're really into comparative religion. You know, they're they're not. You know, they're probably the least dogmatic Christian sect there ever existed. And so, you know, part of my requirements, course requirements, were Chinese philosophy, Indian philosophy, Buddhism. I had several courses like this, different. Eastern religion. And that made me curious. You know, they were, they were mandatory courses. So they, I could have just been bored out of my mind, but I actually found it interesting. And the other thing was my father had been, um, stationed, he was in the Pacific theater during World War II. And so he had a lot of, you know, he was, he was the actual wartime part. He was in the islands of Japan and that area. And, uh, it was in Okinawa and Guadalcanal, that area. And then post-World War II, he was part of U.S. troops that spent, Many months in China, marching from the south up to Tianzhen. and so he came back with uh, all kinds of strange little baubles from the east, you know, that he stuffed into his his duffel bag, I guess. So I remember there was like a Chinese lamp, and you know, these little little statues of Buddha and things like that. And he wasn't he wasn't an Asian; he wasn't particularly interested in Asian culture. He just picked that stuff up. And uh, I think maybe being an infant, you know, a kid is six, seven years old. I remember just. I'd be looking at those objects. you know, how kids just get fascinated by something. So I don't know, that might have put some interest in Eastern philosophy as well. And as far as practice goes, um, when I, after I read that book by Buddha Dasa, I um, determined, I I'd made a vow to myself that I would meet him someday. And I, I did finally, so during that same trip where I did the first Lonely Planet Guide, research for the first Lonely Planet Guide, and the field studies I was doing for my degree, my, um, my final paper there was on uh, communist views, communist insurgency views in Thailand and Malaysia about tourism in the future under a communist regime. And I got it all from like VOA. It was like you know, People's Liberation Army of Thailand radio broadcast when they would t- touch on tourism. It's funny because they, were all, they had said, they already had policy laid out for tourism, for Buddhism also. I was very interested about post-communist Buddhism, for example, and um, so when I went, I met, so I stayed with Buddha Dasa during that period. And he, like, he wasn't that famous. The place is really remote down in Suan Mok, down in Southern Thailand. And uh, he taught me to meditate. And more than that, it, and then I had a, practicing meditation with a few other monks here and there along the way. Not, not, very, not that seriously, but yeah. It, you know, it's good to do once in a while. But he it, just his way of understanding the world, and the, he was a man of few words. He never smiled, but he said to me, once in a while, it would just stop me in my tracks, and I, to this day, I, you know, a few of those. Can you
0: give it? A, yeah, can you give a couple? Well, one
2: of them is the one of them is the one I closed the CNN article with, which CNN tells me they get so much feedback, comment, a positive comment on that, where he said to me one time he just stopped. I hadn't talked to him that much about traveling. You know, I wasn't saying like I'm a travel fanatic, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess he just sort of assumed it. And I did tell him about the Lonely Planet contract. And I said, I'm going to do this thing with this new company, and it looks promising. And uh, But at one, he, one time he stopped. We were taking a, a walk in the woods, and he stopped and said, you know why you like to travel? And I said, no. He says, because everywhere you go, you don't own anything. When, you, when you're at home, you feel burdened by all your stuff. When you travel, you leave it all behind. And that's why you like it. He didn't say it that pleasantly, though. <laughs> he said it like in an accusing way. Right. Like you, well, you idiot, right. you have right. to travel to realize that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: right it is one of the the beautiful lessons that came out of travel for me at least is the uh, minimalism and yeah kind of not um not needing much to be happy you know coming from a such a consumer society consumerist society and in the u.s it was just such a dramatic dramatically different experience from what I was raised on in suburban Philadelphia, you know, have you found that, you know, having your time all the time you've had in Asia and, and all the studying you've done and, and interactions like this with a uh, Buddha Dasa, uh, is that, am I saying that correctly? Yes. Have you had any sort of fundamental shifts in your mindset, like having been out of the U S for so long and living in a foreign culture that you've noticed
2: yeah, for sure. I, I think one of the early on, I remember thinking, because in my early travels as a leisure traveler and then later as a guidebook writer, I remember, you know, there was a, like preparing for the trip and thinking about the trip, you project the trip, and I always thought of it at, at back down, but thinking about it like, I'm leaving this world, I'm going to that world, and that world's so cool. You know, and but, but quickly after when I was doing it was just traveling and changing countries and cities all the time. and then I realized, you know what? You know, going from one gun to the next, one culture—it's really just like walking from one room to the other in a house. You know, that that aspect of me entering another world kind of wore off in a way. And uh, but but for the not not as a negative—I don't mean that as a negative—but it also meant that I could function more. I could be more more aware. I could function. My my I didn't I didn't like ooh, you know. I just like keep my I could keep my thing together, you know, which was good. I could get my work done a little bit better. I wasn't so intoxicated. By the, by the surroundings and, all. and then uh what was the other big thing i was going to say that change? oh yeah being outside of the u.s where, where does this podcast go i guess it goes everywhere it's, it's international yeah. are most of your listeners in the states which, there are a lot know?
0: in the states but it, it is yeah. they are all over the world and and some of them are american travel traveling all over the
2: world so because yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to insult anyone when i say this but the longer i'm out of the u.s the more I'm up that country seems to me I mean, politically, but also just culturally. And, you know, I'm a product of that, of that culture. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not super anti-American. Or I'm very, very negative on it. But it's just, it's just looking worse all the time. It actually came to mind when I was reading, when I'm doing my research now for this Bourdain story. Um, Bourdain was saying the same thing for years, you know, as an American traveling around. It was just, he had a very dark, pessimistic view about the future of America. And I feel like some of the words he was saying in interviews, I was just reading one, 2016, the other day. And it was like so prophetic. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I, he, Trump has just been elected. You know? I don't want to make a political thing. And it wasn't all about Trump either. It was actually about you know the cultural norm that you know, that, that, that created Trump, as they say. And um, yeah, he was prophetic. He was really, it was, yeah. So I, you know, I've gone through some of the, the same things. And now I feel, I feel I'm feel i glad not to be living in the States. Uh, I'm working on Thai citizenship now. I hope to get it in the next year or so. And uh, then I won't have to keep my American passport. I probably will. You know, I, I don't want to renounce my citizenship, but I'll, maybe I won't renew it because I, I don't really have plans to go back. I might go back. I have one family member left in the States, my younger sister. And, you know, I'd like to, she's been over. She came over, actually, last year, she and her husband. So I, I should probably be make a trip there i haven't been in six years now maybe okay
0: yeah that's a long time yeah it's uh, i love my home country america where i come from and i i obviously i wouldn't be who i am without being raised there and there's certain american things that i just love and that's great i think growing up in any country i'm sure you're just kind of like that's what you're familiar with so it's really hard to see it with a fresh perspective, but then when you leave and, and obviously that it's changing like every place all the time, but you, you, you see, you know, especially living in Norway, like how there are a lot of systems here that are set up better to more support people in, in a different way in the U S it's maybe more like a, every man for himself kind of situation on, on like a mass level, but then on like a neighborhood level, everybody's so friendly and we'll help each other out. So, you know, there, there's s- the more,
2: the, I guess the more social and government support you get, the less you need to depend on your neighbors, maybe
0: yeah maybe right that could be a thing which maybe would explain some of like the less you know they're less inclined here to kind of just chat each other up on the streets or whatever which is a cultural thing so i mean there are yeah yeah, it's a complicated thing i mean i could say like i don't think either of us are poo-pooing the u.s but we're just taking an honest you're just able to take i I guess i would say you're just able to take a more honest look at where you come from when you leave that's definitely sort of the definitely
2: and it's funny how people back in the states who don't travel at all or not much don't really get that they just they, they just think you're being negative because you're nasty or something or, you know you're, you're just seeing it like it is you know i mean every country has its good side and its bad sides
0: right and i mean i've gone to i've visited plenty of countries like you who have uh you know they're they've got their own messed up situations, but because you're, you're traveling through and you're seeing the best of it. And you're having that, like, like you described before, like maybe you're having that shiny object syndrome. Like you're going, every place is new and you can kind of forget about yourself because everything's so exciting and new. it, it, It kind of like lets you get lost in it. And like, we've been traveling around a lot. Like you've been, like you said, it kind of, I think you get to be more who you are while you're traveling in some ways because you're not distracted by, Uh, like all the newness, like even going into a a new grocery store in a new country is always like a magnificent experience, right? Yes. (laughs) Just looking around and. It's true. It's a good point. Yeah. This must've been a thrill for me. I know you're working on this Bourdain piece and you mentioned him being a hero to you. And I know you play music. I'm guessing you still play guitar. I I play a pretty crappy guitar. I saw a picture on your website it was you and I should, I should mention the website again, joecummings.com with two Ms. And uh, Such it was, a bad website. it was you and Mick <laughs> Jagger hanging out. Yep. Uh, that was back in the day. I know, but what was that experience like?
2: It was great. It was really good. It was really, uh, it was really easy going. It was, um, yeah, it went very smoothly and we ended up hanging out several more times after that, which I, I only wrote about that one experience because the rest of it's private as far as I, I mean, I, I originally met him. I was hired to, do some consulting on a documentary behind the scenes during that tour, and that's why I was there. But um, but then after that, when he would come to Thailand, he would call me up, and then we would just hang out. And same in New York, and uh, I took took him around Southeast Asia. So um, yeah, I got to know him pretty well. I guess I mean, I one called a friend or something. But uh, and I've had no contact with him since around 2014. But uh, yeah, it was really cool. He was really he's super bright, really really bright, very considerate, at least around. You know, I saw, very considerate people around him, aware that, you know, his, his fame is kind of freaks people out a little bit. But uh, for me, I, did, I didn't let it happen. I, I don't know how, but just, I just saw the human in him right away. I just stuck to that. But, um, yeah, really well read. I mean, he took me up to his suite at the were hotel, and he had stacks of reference books about Thailand and some of the other countries. Not just he had a, guide, a lot of guidebooks. He had, like, I counted, like, 11 guidebooks. He must have, you know, a trunk that he carries. It's like eleven guidebooks and um, several that I'd written, and then he. But he had like history books on Cambodia, and you know he was like really, really into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's appreciated that you see somebody for. We're all just human, right? We all put our pants on one leg at a time, and all that good stuff. All those cliches are true, Uh, (laughs) but it's you know it's experiences like this that I mean, I always find thinking back. I mean, if you don't put yourself out into the world then you're guaranteed to not ever meet a mick jagger or you know like these things won't happen unless you kind of take chances you know people want to quit their jobs and travel or somebody listening to this maybe they're like wanting to travel or not sure how to get into it or whatever what advice would you give uh, well it
2: depends on what they want to get out of it if they um i would say if they just have a strong desire to travel they just want to you know, some people will quit their jobs. They'll save some money, go through job, quit their jobs, and then travel for a year. I think I think that's really worth doing, even if it means you might not get another job for a while when you get back. I think that's worth the risk. I'm a risk taker, you know, but uh, I would take that risk. I would, and I would advise people to do that. That's one thing. Um, you know what I mean? With, I, I would, with no reservations, I would advise that, uh, no matter what your skills are, what level of, you know, what le- what 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 profession you're in everyone should take a year off in travel. and travel if you can get a year off from your job and come back to it even better but if you have to give up your job it's still worth it in my opinion now the other thing is when people say they want to quit their job and find some way to make a living from travel which a lot of bloggers you know are try- sort of like selling these days you know how they you know and then they even s- sell courses after they have a certain number of thousands of followers and they take it upon themselves to be like an instructor and how you two can quit your job and live the life of uh, yeah, perfect life on the road, and I think that's bullshit. I just think. Because either those people have other income, or they're working so hard day and night that they're, they're not really living the life. They're they're doing SEO constantly, you know, constantly doing uh, keywords and, and, you know, what I mean. You have to, It's a lot of work to get, to get successful at doing that. So. I'm, I'm negative on that thing, you know. Quit your job, and become a blogger, or an Instagram or an influencer, or whatever. Um, if someone says they want to be a travel writer and they want to do what I've done and make a career out of it, then I'm, I'm cautious. I advise it, but with caution, I would say you know, do it part time at first, you know, with your own. Don't just give everything up and count on it. And then take a lot of writing courses, master the skill of writing first before you start. Going, you know, you need to be able to travel to write, not write to travel. That's I think a lot of people that think they dream of being a traveler, writer. They want to write in just so they can travel. That's not going to work because no one's going to read your writing because it's not going to be good enough. You got to travel to write. You got to be so good. You have to get at the top. You have to be like in the top one percent just to make a living. i say, in travel writing. So uh, I, you know, I say do it, but you know, have to take it real seriously. Take the writing part really, really seriously.
0: That's great advice. I, I found that. One of the greatest joys in life really is to try to hone a craft you know writing, playing guitar, songwriting, whatever any any hobby or podcasting like doing these interviews for the last seven years it, it's it's a craft that you're just constantly working on there's no you can never get to like a, a top of a pyramid because it doesn't exist but it's such a joy to try to improve in that way I think and 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 the process. If you could do anything over again, would you do anything differently?
2: Well, my contract with along the L- planet would have been a little more ironclad on that royalty clause. <laughs> okay, That's, yeah, that, that would be number one. Yeah, that would yeah. Be number one. Um, otherwise, not really. You know, I've, I've I, I, by lucky happenstance, circumstance, everything's kind of worked out fine. I never had a, you know, I didn't have a what do you call it, a, go- a game plan. I just. I just wanted to be out there traveling. I wanted to be riding. I wanted, you know, just taking jobs here and there. You know, I've met like Mick Jagger and other people like that. So it wasn't like none of us planned. It's just, you know, I say yeah, that's that stupid, you know, a new age slogan, you know, follow your bliss. I did that, I guess. I guess that's what I did. I hate to term it that. And it's also that sounds so selfish to me. Um, I like to think that I did some social good along the way, you know, preparing people for places they were going and supporting travel businesses on the other hand and all that. but and wasn't that wasn't
0: it. that part of your bliss right I mean yeah doing that absolutely yeah absolutely I, yeah, so, I think that point. sounds selfish because it's yeah. it's all mixed in right right yeah. yeah what do you think the future of travel looks like uh, in terms of post pandemic travel do you have any you want to play the futurist for a couple minutes and yeah then, it's really hard place? of
2: course it's, we, we none of us actually knows right but mm-hmm. uh, but um Two things that I think I can predict pretty safely is that the way people choose once we can really travel, you know, it's going to be very restrictive for a while. Not just in the qualitative aspect of uh, having to respect social distancing and bookings on airlines and you know, want every other seat vacant. Okay, there's 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 that. Uh, and then there's also the restriction in which countries will be open first. But let's just move ahead to where it's pretty much the whole world's open. You can go anywhere you want. And with, with Maybe a few restrictions when it's when we get to that point. What I think one thing we're going to see is that people will have changed their travel plans. They will they won't be going back as much to the same old place that that was sort of their happy place, you know, where they we always do the beach vacation in April here, and we always do the ski resort in November here. I think people will be a little more bucket list oriented. You know, you, you usually think of older travelers as thinking, you know. I got to get to these places before I die. But I think now people of all ages, leisure travelers of all ages, will be thinking, you know, before the next pandemic, well, I, I need to see the stuff I really need to see and not waste my time. Let's not wasting, but not spend my time so much going over the same ground. So I think it's going to, what do you call it? It's going to mix it up for people. It's going to give, it's going to, well, I can't think of the term right now, but it's I mean, going to motivate great.
0: them a little bit more to go to yeah, new sort places. Like, it's like
2: throws, throw the cards in the air a little bit. It's, it's like a little, they will be more, um, yeah, they'll refine their bucket list. Okay. To, yeah. Cool. It, it'll be a little more urgent too. I got to get to this place. I know that's what it's done for me. You know, I, I'm like, and now I'm planning a trip to Tunisia and Algeria when I can, when that's happening. Cause I've, I've been wanting to go to those two countries for a long time. And now I'm, now I'm determined to get there as you know as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. I would be a fool if I didn't ask you a little bit about Thailand before I let you go. If we want to experience the real Thailand, what's your advice? And whether it's a destination or destinations or certain things to do or a certain amount of time to spend. I mean, whatever. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: I would say one thing is the mode of travel instead of flying around or taking these horrible air-conditioned tour buses, take the train. Because the train you get... You hang out with the, you know, the local people, and it's like a whole scene. It's a whole subculture in itself, actually, train travel. And it's almost a destination in itself, train travel. I, just, I think it's a great way to like immerse yourself into Thailand to take the trains because it's still very old-fashioned, the train system. Have you taken trains in Thailand? Yeah, I
0: took one up to, I don't think it was too far, but Sukhothai from Bangkok. Yep. How far is that? Yep. I don't that's a, know. Yeah, that's a good one day. That's like,
2: you know six hours yeah i, hours, eight I, I hours
0: love taking trains i mean i love the sound of yeah. them i love the scene yeah. i love the the feeling of the air everything about it i, I love it yeah.
2: yeah Well, so the, you know that's what of some, so that, that would be one way just take the train and take it and then take it on lines maybe that aren't to the major destinations. if you take the chiang mai line which is probably the one you took you're going to see a lot of tourists they're going to put you in a car with tourists they don't oh, Probably if they identify you as a tourist when you're buying a your ticket. This was in like 99.
0: I don't know what it was like then. but uh, Okay. It was,
2: probably, it was probably more. It was probably better than in terms of not seeing so many other travelers. But, so, uh, yeah, tr- get on train. Take them on the lines that aren't going to Chiang Mai or to where else. Uh, any place that's like a major tourist station. Take them up to Isan, to northeastern Thailand. Take trains. There's three different lines into the northeast. Northeast, first of all, is a great place to be off the beaten track only two percent of all travelers statistically on average visit the northeastern thailand it's 19 provinces that are it's incredible archaeological uh, architectural uh sites there and natural sites national parks rivers etc mountains limestone caves there's plenty to see it's not like it's not neglected because there's nothing to see it's just people are going for the beaches and the mountains beaches and mountains And I kind of avoid the beaches, you know, maybe built in some beach time if you'd like, if you like beaches, but don't center your trip around beaches. Um, And then there's pockets of southern Thailand that I find very, very interesting. It's funny how southern Thailand has been neglected, except for Samui, Ga Samui, and the provinces next to Suratani, and then Phuket, of course, and then Grabe next to Phuket. All the rest of Northern Thailand is really untouristic. It might have similar statistics as Northeast. It might be single digit percentages of tourists. And uh, I was just down, that's where I did my shelter in place. I did seven weeks. I rented a house on the beach in Trang for seven weeks. So I, you know, I kind of like, it was the longest time I'd spent in that province. And I, I'm in love with it now. It's like a new, a new love for me. And So I really encourage people to go down there too. All these fishing villages, Very traditional way of life. Still,
0: I love that—that you can have so much experience in in that part of the world and still go down and fall in love with a new place, right? Yeah, that is a beautiful thing. What are you most proud of looking back at, uh like your career, the traveling you've done, just kind of life in general?
2: Um, you know, writing wise, my my two biggest accomplishments by my own, you know, according to me are uh, two coffee table books. I've done like 25 coffee table books. Uh, some of them very in consequence, just work for hire. But the ones that I were driven by me, projects driven by me. Um, and it, I, I really love the research. I love the way I was able to like, dig deep into these subcultures. One is uh, on the sacred tattoos of Thailand, you know, traditional Thai tattoos. I don't know if you can see any here, but, and which is a really interesting, I mean, everyone's sort of acquainted with it, but I mean, it's a deep, deep Underworld, shall we say. Shall we say. So I, for 18 months, I traveled around Thailand, visiting masters and talking to disciples and learning about what everything means, how the system works. And uh, so the result was this book, Sacred Tattoos of Thailand. I'm very proud of it because it's, I think it's you know fairly well written, but it's, it's original research. It's, it, it's stuff about that culture. You put your like you serious
0: journalistic hat on
2: and yeah, went for and, it, right? And, and, <laughs> and academic, even the academic, because it's a it's research that you won't find anywhere else. Not even in, I read every Thai language book there was on the subject, and and I went beyond that. You know, if I could be immodest for a moment, so it's a piece of original research that I think will stand the test of time, that people will be reading it. I hope after I'm gone. So I'm proud of that one. and Another book on Buddhist stupas that I did way back in the year 2000. It's out of print now. Um, kind of hard to find, but I did similarly, I took the topic of Buddhist stupas, you know, those conical shaped monuments in all the Buddhist temples from Afghanistan to Japan. And I worked with a very good photographer and we traveled everywhere in Buddhist Asia and uh, produced this book, incredible photography. And again, I, I wanted to find out, I wanted to discover an integrated system for what draws this whole thing together all artistically, uh, iconologically, spiritually theologically you know, and and I did it like I achieved that goal again I came up with an integrated theory of Buddhist stupid construction and design that never existed before I mean that you can't find any in any other books and again I hope that will be read after I die so those are the two pieces of writing I'm most proud of that's and they, you know, they're not necessarily the best-selling stuff I've ever done no that's
0: great I mean congratulations it's a uh... Such a wonderful feeling, I imagine, to put your heart and soul into something like that and know that, you know, you've created something that can live on beyond you. Yeah, um, to do something new, to actually do,
2: to do something original, do original research of any kind. It's kind of, you know, when I was doing my master's degree, it was like, that was the, they were always holding up, well, this guy had done the first research on this. And I, you know, I never, I never really think, I never thought I'd ever had that opportunity to apply that kind of a. The discipline to things but i, I did it twice
0: yeah it's interesting how prior experience in life can kind of all of a sudden come into play later in life you know it's like it, now you're taking your academic background from way back then and integrating that into your work and uh i really think everything you do has value and uh you never know how that is going to play out in, in different times true. of life Very well true. i mean this was such a blast same I can't here. tell you much, how much I enjoyed this conversation. And you can check out uh, Joe's website at joecummings.com. And uh, you can search for his name anywhere you can get books if you if you want to check out some of the books you mentioned. Yeah, am I missing anything? Do you want to share any, like, I don't social so. media things or anything like that? Can we have yeah, you back on, man? Yeah. Can, can we have sure. you? I mean, we, we, gotta, we probably should do a whole episode on Thailand, right? I mean, this is like... Whenever, whenever, yeah. We, we kind of talked about, you know few destinations here or there but you right. clearly there's a lot to talk about culturally spiritually yeah. tra- travel I'll say travel yeah, sure
2: <laughs> yeah it's a it's a it's, it's a reason why Thailand is so popular. It's, you know, the variety here is incredible.
0: Yeah, maybe we can do it in person. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'll come up to Oslo. I think it's do it. Hey man, shoot over yeah. from Sweden, man. It would be great. Because I have friends. I have
2: friends in Oslo too, musician friends. So okay. Uh, yeah. Hey man, I got
0: a guitar. If we can do some jamming, I mean, uh, right on. Let's do it. I'm More of a yeah. three chord guy, you know. But you play lead, right? So we could yeah, uh, figure I'll something. I bet you out. know.
2: I bet you know where to hear live music in Oslo.
0: Yeah, I know a few spots.
2: That's what. I, that's what you gotta do for me. Take come me.
0: on over, man. All right. As soon as they have live
2: music again. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Something to look forward to.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And um, we'll chat soon.
2: All right. Thank you, Jason. Take care. See ya.
0: There you have it. Special thanks once again to Joe Cummings for stopping by today's show. Like I said, awesome, cool guy. Right? Hope you enjoyed listening in. On our conversation, I had a blast. I didn't want it to end. I wanted to just, if I could like somehow zip through the computer screen and just keep hanging out with Joe and having some meals and some beers with him and cruising around Thailand, man, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Uh, Maybe one day they'll invent those teleportation devices or something. Imagine if you had one of those for the day. What would you do? Where would you go? What would you eat? The possibilities are endless. Right now, I'd probably... I don't know, cruise somewhere warm with a white sand beach and uh you know the prototypical sort of beach vacation place. It doesn't even have to be off the beaten path really. I could just sit on a lounge chair and uh, have a margarita or something, uh, some kind of cold drink in my hand and just hear the sound of the ocean. That sounds pretty good right now. Maybe because it was raining all week here in Norway. <laughs> anyway, Before I let you go, we've got a couple more things. You know, I have been asking you to check in, of course. I'm always down to hear from listeners. Jason at zero to travel.com is my email at zero to travel on all the social media things. And uh, of course, you can always send me an audio message. I've been asking for those. And I got one from Megan in Boston who had some thoughts to share around the pandemic and uh, a trend that she's noticed that I found very interesting and I was wondering if it's something that you've noticed as well so I wanted to share that with you so you could hear a voice from the community and if you are so inclined maybe you're just bored or you like listening to the show and you want to touch base if you want to touch base I can say touch base that'd be better touch base, Um, then you can uh, shoot me a message yourself. So uh, maybe Megan's message will inspire you. Uh, I'm gonna share that in a moment. First, I do wanna say one more quick thank you to homeexchange.com for supporting today's show. Home Exchange is the number one home exchange community in the world. It's a service that allows people from everywhere all over the world to exchange their homes easily, seamlessly, and without any money changing hands. As the most trusted home exchange community in the world, home exchange offers authentic, responsible, and affordable holiday opportunities for everyone to enjoy. So they really open up the tourism industry by offering something more. Staying in paid accommodation is increasingly, I don't know, kind of cold or impersonal. Home exchange is a whole new experience. You get to stay in real authentic homes and feel welcomed as guests. And of course, you are part of a community. And just so you know, you don't have to exchange your home at the same exact time this was one of the myths that i thought was was a reason why uh i don't know if i do a home exchange thing because when am i ever going to be able to match up exactly with somebody else who's traveling at the same exact time on the same days and we can just like switch homes and switch back and it'll be a place that i want to go and a place that they want to go all of that seemed impossible that's not how it works it's awesome. That is a classic exchange. It's something you can do. But they also do uh, an exchange with something called guest points. So, you know, you can earn points by letting people stay in your home and you can use points to stay in other members' homes. It's really cool. I mean, it's, it's great how it works like that because you have the flexibility that you want as a traveler. So if you join, you should sign up. It's free. You get access to 400,000 homes around the world. And you do not have to pay their annual fee until you make your first exchange. I love when companies do the right thing, right? They're not making you pay up front. It's like, hey, all right, sign in, get set up, use this. If you end up making an exchange, then you pay the annual fee. It's only $150 for the entire year. And you get 10% off by using the promo code 010. 010 is the promo code. And you'll get 10% off just for being a listener of this podcast. Let them know I sent you and uh, hope to see you on there. As I mentioned, I'm moving next week. And after I move, I want to get on home exchange. And uh, once I get settled in and, and get some exchanges going, so maybe maybe we'll swap home someday. You know, who knows? Thanks again to them for supporting today's show. Now, let me share this audio clip from Megan in Boston Again, she mentions a trend that she's noticed during the pandemic and shares her thoughts and then also asks a question that I'm going to answer on the back end. So here's Megan from the Zero to Travel listening community.
1: Hi, Jason. My name's Megan. I'm 23 and currently living in Boston, but I'm actually moving down to Virginia um, right outside the D.C. area. Next weekend, so that'll be my little in country travel adventure for the time being. But I just listened to your podcast about the expectations for travel, and I've been listening to your podcast on and off for the last couple of weeks. I just found it again after listening to an episode or two a couple of years ago, and it's definitely helped with the stir craziness. But one thing that I've noticed just from talking to a few people is that pretty much the majority of people I know in the U.S. are moving to different parts of the U.S. just like up and moved um, on a whim pretty much. I did the same thing signing my lease. I was like sure why not because I think a lot of us here have realized that I mean the U.S. is a show right now with the current state of our handling of the pandemic and everything. Um, and I think a lot of people have realized that a lot of their bucket list items or stuff that they want to do and have just been kind of putting off, um, aren't going to happen right now, at least not how we would picture them happening. Um, so I think people are just pretty much saying, well, if I can't go travel and do this, why not just move there? And that was pretty surprising to me. Um, Honestly, because I would think that people would dig into their home and like their comfort zone during this, but most people are just saying, you know, screw it. I'm going to go off and have some random adventure. Um, So yeah, that's kind of what I've been noticing around here. And one thing that I was just curious about was, um, and I'm not sure if one of your old podcasts touched upon this, but how to go about meeting new people during a pandemic. I know that people have been using um, Bumble BFF, which is like Tinder, but for friends instead of dating. Um, and people have kind of been doing more of that stuff just to be creative about how to meet people because you can't really meet them naturally or, you know, going into an office or co-workers or anything like that. Um, so I thought that would be an interesting thing to hear about, just not just US-based, but in general, is how people are expanding those their social circles during the pandemic.
0: Thank you for taking the time to record that message and send it over, Megan. And yeah, that's an interesting trend that people are moving to kind of um, embrace a new place. Maybe that's the new version of travel right now. I can see that that would be true in the sense that one thing this whole pandemic has done is it's kind of very much in your face that hey you never know i mean like you never know when life is uh going to take a crazy turn or when it will be your last day on earth you know i don't say that in a morbid way i say it in a in a positive way and and this uh this pandemic is certainly i think opened uh, a lot of eyes to the fact that hey any day could be my day especially with something like this going on so what am i waiting for to uh move here or, or do this thing I want to do or whatever um let's just do it uh, you know in the face of death anything else kind of seems uh not as scary or really not I don't know it it it's definitely a good motivator I would say and to answer your question I mean I, I wanted to jot down three ideas that I thought could help you expand your social circle and you mentioned a couple of the apps and things like that so i thought that was super helpful that was another reason i wanted to uh share this clip because again this is a community so i love when um we can get people in the community involved the listening community here you guys you listening to this the zero to travel caravan and have you share some things. I had not heard about these apps that Megan mentioned, so thanks for sharing those, Megan, and yeah, maybe those are some things for people to check out. Uh, of course, if you're looking to expand your social circle, um, I would say, number one, you know, joining an online community, I mean, we have a community called Location Indie. If you're into location independence and travel and things like that, you can sign up over at locationindie.com, and we do all kinds of events and things like that, but you know, whatever version of that, for you. If you're into knitting, join an online community with other people who knit and jump on Zoom calls and uh you know, meet them. I know, you know, Zoom burnout is a real thing, but it's like it is a way to meet people and to stay connected and uh there are a lot of cool online communities out there that are specific to whatever it is you are interested in. So, that'd be one thing. Two, I know this may not be possible everywhere, but I can tell you right now, just joining a co-working space is a uh, cool way to get plugged into a community. I know not everybody needs a co-working space. If you're not working for yourself, you might be thinking, why would I join a co-working space? But, you know, everybody's got different projects going on. You might be taking some online classes. You have different things you got to do. And it's nice to have a workspace to do that, but also a place to get around people that are generally doing pretty cool stuff. So, that might be something to check out. And the third and last thing is something I always recommend if uh, you are somebody who wants to build your network, whether it's friendship or business or whatever, take charge, you know, be a leader. Even if you don't think you're somebody that can take charge and do that, just do it because you'll find that you are. Anybody can organize uh, meetups and start things. You just got to take the initiative to go do it. And I would say, you know, organizing, for example, a responsible outdoor meetup is something that anybody can do there's uh, websites like meetup.com if you wanted to try to organize something online you could do something like that as well Uh, whatever you're comfortable with but the point is be the organizer be the person that brings people together because then you get to meet everybody you're kind of the uh, the linchpin that's holding the group together that's a great place to be when you want to meet people, you know, we only have so much time. So you could go to a meetup and be one of the attendees and try to kind of meet other people, or you can organize it and get to meet a ton of people just through being sort of the point person. And anyway, those are just a few thoughts I wanted to share. I I know in-person meetups aren't uh, always possible nowadays, but I, I still think It can be done as long as it's uh, being done safely and under the guide, the current guidelines, whatever they may be at the time of this listening. And the last bonus tip is, you know, go to events. I mean, people are still putting on events and I mean, just make sure that they're doing it responsibly. You know, we are planning on doing our Camp Indie event next summer at a summer camp and uh, in the northeast if you go to campindy.com you can check it out and we've already been talking to them figuring out what their protocols are and and learning how many people we can safely have on site and everything like that doing all the due diligence now for an event that uh, we're assuming will happen in june 2021 but you know, we, we have to assume the worst that this is still going on. And that means how are we going to handle things and make everybody safe. So we're just getting that plan in place now. So everybody knows the the plan and the protocols, everybody's safe. And it's going to be all good. So if you're interested in coming to hang out at summer camp, you can always check that out to campindie.com. Shameless plug there. Okay. Now before I let you go, first of all, thank you. Once again, um, if you were feeling inspired by Megan's voicemail, I'd love for you to do the same. Just open up the audio recording app on your smartphone and record a message. Send it over. Jason at zero2travel travel.com. I'd love to include more of you all in the show since this is a community-powered show and this show is, exists for you, my friend. Uh, so if you have any guest recommendations or you just want to share anything at all, send me a message right over there to my email. i read them all. Uh, thank you so much once again for listening. I'm going to leave you with this quote from... Dogen Zenji, who said, If you cannot find the truth right where you are, where else do you expect to find it? Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Peace and love. This podcast has been brought
1: to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.